Well, there's a lot going on in Mark chapter 6, and so I made a decision to kind of focus in on the feeding of the 5,000, and then also some stuff that comes later in chapter 8, where we get the feeding of the 4,000 and then references to it after that. So reading from the New Living Translation, beginning in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Jesus feeds the 5,000. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there are so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left uh, by, by boat for a quieter place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, You feed them. With what? they asked. We have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. How much bread do you have? he asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, We have five loaves of bread and two fish. Then Jesus told his disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of fifty or a hundred. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up toward heaven, and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. And he also divided the fish for everyone to share. They all ate as much as they wanted, and afterward the disciples picked up twelve baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. So we had said uh, briefly last week that the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle story that appears in all four Gospels, which I think is rather fascinating. Its, it's um, companion story, the feeding of the 4,000, appears in two of the four. But several things are going on, and if you, read, if you read the different stories, they seem to have their emphases in different places. Um, so in some of them, you know, there's a mention of a boy who has the fish and the loaves. That's not mentioned here in Mark's gospel. Mark also seems to have an emphasis on Jesus as the shepherd and teaching them, which we don't necessarily find in the others. But kind of collectively, um, a couple of things I think stand out about the story. Um, about the story, it's here in Mark's gospel, it's more explicit maybe in some of the others but it's, it's part of the reason why I think we find it in all four. Two things primarily. Uh, one of them is economic. So we talked about this some last week with the story of the uh, demoniac that um, the legion of demons goes into the 2,000 pigs. They run into the, ocean, into the sea, Sea of Galilee, and they say, hey, would you mind leaving? <laughs> Can you just like get out of here? So the economic impact of Jesus's uh, gospel um, is is damaging, right? They're not they're not prepared for it, and so both both kind of in 
economic hope and an economic fear, the gospel finds its way to us. The other, and this is, um, it's more latent within Mark's version of the story, um, is just the sheer number of people. 5,000 men and their families is a huge crowd of people uh, in the ancient world, especially in the region of Galilee. What's striking about that is in uh, the Old Testament, kind of the gathering of Jews and in particular the numbering of them uh, occurs on a number of occasions. But fairly consistently, uh, the census or sensi, censuses, what's the plural census? Censuses. Censuses. Uh, in the Old Testament are related to military conquest. Right? Why do we count how many we have? Because we need to know how many we have versus how many they have. And so um, any uh, Jew uh, kind of hearing this story and hearing the size of that number, particularly as it relates to kind of the economic hope of someone who can provide, um, economics and, and military uh, imagery kind of go hand in hand. This is a bit more explicit in John's gospel where it says, and having been fed, the 5,000 sought to take him by force and make him king. So for John, it's, they're kind of saying, this is what we're going to do. If Jesus had 5,000 men, that's an army, right? We'd already seen uh, previously in the previous chapter the, the legion of 2,000 uh, pigs slash metaphor for 2,000 Romans. Jesus has, you know, a group for two and a half legion. That's a, that's a huge group of people. Uh, big enough that if you have messianic expectations, you can accomplish them. You just march to Jerusalem, kick out the Romans, and establish your kingdom. So, of course, that doesn't happen. Um, but I think this is kind of, this kind of feeds that a bit. Now, I want us to fast forward just a bit to the beginning of chapter 8. We get a story of the feeding of the 4,000. So it sounds like it's the same story, but then the numbers don't quite match up. About this time, another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. Jesus and his disciples told them, I feel sorry for, or Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way, for some of them have come a long distance. And his disciples replied, How are we supposed to have enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? And Jesus asked, How much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, thanked God for them, and broke them into pieces. He gave them to his disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A few small fish were found too, so Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. They ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 people in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home. After they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into the boat with his disciples and they crossed uh, over to the region of Dalmanutha. So, was there a reference earlier as to how much they had left over in Mark's version of the story? There was? 
chapter. Yeah, it says they picked up 12 baskets. Yeah. Two, two amazing numbers, really. Um, the fact that Jesus called uh, 12 disciples is... Um, a rabbi having disciples was not an unusual thing. For him to call 12 exactly is a, um, a loaded number. So we've said, and again, this might be a bit more clear in Matthew's gospel, but um, Jesus is an alternate um, to Moses. Moses was going to be killed as a baby. Jesus is going to be killed as a baby. Moses comes out of Egypt. Jesus comes out of Egypt. Moses goes through the Red Sea. Jesus goes into the Jordan. Moses in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. Moses comes back and breaks them up into 12 tribes. Jesus calls 12 disciples. Um, every time Moses is going to do something, he goes up on the mountain. Every time Jesus wants to do something, he goes up on a mountain, at least in Matthew's version of the story. So we get this idea that Jesus is establishing a new Israel. What, what they had hoped for, what they had longed for, hadn't come to fruition. But now this is coming to fruition in the life of ministry of Jesus. And so for him to feed the 5,000 and there to be 12 baskets left over, kind of one for each disciple or one for each tribe, it's a, it is a loaded Jewish metaphor. He then goes and feeds 4,000, and now he has seven left over, which is another not insignificant symbolic number. Not so much because it refers to kind of Judaism, but it refers to kind of universalism. That you start to see this move, which maybe is um, more apparent in Luke, but is nevertheless also present in Mark, that the one who would be the Jewish Messiah was not just a Jewish Messiah, but was the king of the world. Um, you get this language when Luke, Jesus is called the savior of the world. And Mark, he's not called the savior of the world, but he's called the Christ who is the son of God. And you get this kind of expression that this confession of Peter, you are the Christ, and then later the confession of the Roman soldier, you are the son of God. So you, you, you do get this kind of trajectory as it as it moves out. But what's interesting, back in chapter 8 again, as we've told the story of the, of the feeding of the 4,000, you get this little story where the Pharisees demand a miraculous sign. And what I'm really interested in is the story that comes after that. But the disciples, this is a beginning in uh, chapter 8, verse 14. But the disciples had forgotten to bring food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. At this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew that they were saying, or what they were saying. So he said, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Do you not know or even yet understand? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? Have you eyes and can't see? Have you ears and can't hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up? They ate 12, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many uh, baskets are left over did you pick up? Seven, they said. And he said, don't you understand yet? 
What are they not understanding? Simply the fact that Jesus is a miracle worker? I mean, he supplies their need? That he will provide? Yeah, so kind of on one level, again, you have this the kind of the basic, the basic meaning just kind of resting there on the top of the text. Yeah, Jesus does this stuff. But then also on this other level, there's these kind of implications of the gospel. Um, let's look at the next story. It's a, it's a healing story, but I think um, there's another, it's a similar story, I think, to the, the sandwich that we looked at last week between, we looked at Jairus' request to come heal his daughter. On the way, there's the woman with the issue of blood, and then you finish the story. So you have two stories of Jairus and sandwiched in between them is the woman. This healing of a blind man is sandwiched in between these two discussions with the disciples. One where they're not so sure they understand, or at least Jesus isn't so sure they understand. And the other, you get Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ. And in between them is this story. It begins in verse 22. When they arrived at Bethesda, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then, spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? The man looked round. Yes, he said. I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away, saying, Don't go back into the village on your way home. We're going to read just a few more verses and then come back to that. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. As they were there walking along, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say that you're one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So that's a kind of more condensed version of that same story that we know from Mark and Luke. But it begs this question. Why did Jesus touch the guy twice to heal him? Like he touches them and he's kind of partly healed. And then he touches them a second time and he's like completely healed. So on the first touch, he, he can partially see. On the second touch, he can fully see. So why the two touches? That's not rhetorical. Let's think about it. Yeah, that's a good question. So we've had healing stories before. We just saw one last week in chapter 5. Two healing stories there, actually, right? Both Jairus's daughter and the woman with the issue of blood. And it seems as though faith was related to both of those healings. Um, on the one hand, it's the woman's faith. He says, your faith has made you well. And on the other, it seems to be the father's faith. He's saying, only believe. And we compare that back earlier to chapter 2, with the four friends who bought their, um, their paralyzed friend. And he says, because of their faith, you are saved. Or your sins are forgiven. Right? So he gets 
Forgiveness of sins based on somebody else's faith. That's a really strange one. Um, but here, there's no mention of faith, right? Like, G there's no mention of Jesus having faith. There's no mention of other people having faith. There's no mention of this man having faith. So, whatever historically took place in the life of Jesus, the Gospels have their own order. Like, Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a common order. Like, you would think that you're watching a, a, a familiar film, or then you see, like, a remake of the film. So you could, you know, watch, like, the Oceans movie with the original Rat Pack with uh, Dean Martin and... and uh, and Sammy Davis Jr. And, and Frank Sinatra in that crowd. And then they remake it with like George Clooney and Brad Pitt and, you know, um, Matt Damon or whoever, like the new Rat Pack, right? And you, you're watching it, or if you watch like the old James Bond and then you watch a new James Bond, even the ones that were remakes like Casino Royale or whatever, like I know this story, or I know it well enough, I can follow along. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are like that, they're like remakes. Like, I know this story. It's a continuing drama. You're introduced to the hero, who is Jesus. He runs into conflict with, with uh, kind of the Jewish leadership. Um, that escalates until he gets to Jerusalem. His Jerusalem activity results in his arrest. And surprise, surprise, his conviction and then crucifixion. And so, while there might have been hints at it and kind of bits of like foreshadowing... I think if we ever had the potential to actually read it afresh, like imagine we were hearing the gospel for the first time, we lived in, I don't know, Morocco, and, and the gospel's just making its way out there. And it's, it's, you know, it's 150 AD, and the gospel's just coming, gospel of Mark's coming to us you know, in written form, and we're reading it. There's, there's a lot of drama there, right, as that gets, um, as that gets picked up. So definitely Jesus dies in Matthew, Mark, and Luke because he disturbed the temple activity. It led to his arrest, his trial and conviction, and then his execution, right? And of course, he gets resurrected. John's gospel is, is not a remake. It does not come to us as, as the same basic story. In fact, it doesn't even read like a continuing drama. It's not like a big film where there's just one primary narrative. It's these little episodes. It comes to us like, not the, the nine o'clock hour, hour-long drama that you have to watch week after week because they're all connected. It comes to us at the eight o'clock sitcom where there's a little episode and there's a different group of, there's the same main group of people and you have these other cameos that kind of show up. It's the... Um, Everybody Loves Raymond or Seinfeld or Friends with the Office version of the gospel. So you get um, the water turned to wine. That's only in John's gospel. And that's one little story. You got all the main characters, including Jesus, his disciples, and his mom. Nicodemus comes at night. That's another episode. Uh, the, the woman uh, at the well. The man by the pool that can't get down the water fast enough. Um, the walking on the water, the man born blind, the raising of the anointing of Jesus, the raising of Lazarus, the foot washing. All of those stories are unique to John, and all of those stories are episodic. 
They're not, they're not drawn throughout the gospel. They have a definite beginning and ending. And, and you have some cameos of recurring people, like the mother of Jesus occurs in a couple, and Nicodemus occurs in a couple. But the rest of those people, the Samaritan woman, the nobleman whose son is healed, the man born blind, the guy by the sheep gate, they're, they're a one-time-only appearance in the Gospel of John. And so it comes to us, right, in a very different kind of cadence. Mark, as, as we said on the first night, and we only have... We have tonight and we have one more night uh, of our Bible study. And then we're kind of suspending it for Thanksgiving and the holidays. And we'll pick back up first of the year. But we're kind of getting to this major um, linchpin. Linchpin, is that the right word? Major hinge in the story. So what the readers knew from the very beginning, this is, this, this is the good news. This is the gospel about Jesus who is A, the Christ, and B, the Son of God. So in the storyline, it starts then with this person of Jesus, and it crescendos to chapter 8 here, where, where Peter says, you are the Christ. And it's as though everybody in the story now knows that. Like No one seemed to know it before him, except for a demon here or there. Um, but even then, they talked more about his divinity than his kind of uh, Messiah role, right? So you get, here's the Messiah, and it's like the cat is out of the bag. Now what are we going to do? Well, if you're the king, right, the Messiah, where, where does the king serve? Jerusalem, right. If you're, the, you know, if you're the governor in Tallahassee, where do you work? In Tallahassee. If you're the governor in Florida, where do you work? Yeah, if you're the president of the United States, where do you work? Yeah. We, we, we know the address of your house. You know, we, we know the office that you work in. If you're the Messiah, you go to Jerusalem, and that's exactly what happens. This Galilee-centric story that we've been paying attention to, once we find out he's the Messiah, it's, it's a travel journey. They're now on the way to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem, and boom, it blows up on him. So here, coming back to Marissa's comment, finally, here what we have is... We have these disciples who are following Jesus and they're kind of getting it, but they're not quite getting it. I mean, I feel like so many of us, myself included, we we follow Jesus and we kind of get what it's like to follow Jesus. Like we we know who he is, mostly, kind of, we think, you know, what would Jesus do? You know, there's old... um, Bracelets and T-shirts and bumper stickers, um, but then we're not quite sure. We we're like on the edge. So the disciples, having seen the feeding of the five thousand, having seen the feeding of the four thousand, Jesus uses this metaphor of the yeast of the Pharisees. And instead of understanding that Jesus is using a figure of speech, they're like, man, we need more bread. Rabbi's upset we didn't bring enough bread. He's like, come on, boys. Catch up. I'm not talking about bread. And then if you, if you pause, if you skipped over that healing story... They've gone from, mm, 
I can't quite figure out who Jesus is, to this major confession, you are the Christ. And in between those, Mark has placed a healing story on one level that I think on another level is not a healing story. It's a spiritual, well, we could call it a healing if you wanted to, depending on how you think of healing. Yeah, it's a, it's a healing of our, of our insides, not the healing of our outsides, not the healing of our bodies, but it's the healing of our souls, our spirits, ourselves, our psyches. That, that they're being made whole. They've kind of gotten it in the past, and now they really get it. He kind of gets it initially. So in a way, the story of the man touched twice ends up being, at least for the narrative of Mark's gospel, this object lesson, this kind of sandwich for the disciples. That they are the ones who had partially seen and now fully see. Now, that wouldn't quite work in Matthew's gospel because right as he's saying, you are the Christ, Jesus is announcing the future death of the Christ to which Peter rejects and then that gets him in trouble and it kind of falls apart. But it works better in Mark. <laughs> it works better in Mark because Mark doesn't jump to Peter's uh, mistakes. Mark's actually a lot friendlier to Peter. Like There are different ways you can tell the story, right? If you read Matthew's version or Luke's version or worst of all, John's version... Uh, Peter ends up being um, less than stellar. And he gets, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he, the last thing you kind of hear about Peter is the denial. I don't know you. Which is kind of a rough way to end the story. You know, any, like, again, if you're reading a book, if you're watching a show, you get introduced to a character, maybe not the character, like the main character, but like the next level and they're, they're a good guy, but they have, they're flawed. And the last thing you hear about them can either be on an upswing or a downswing. The last thing we hear about Peter, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is, I don't know Jesus. That's kind of rough. John, interestingly enough, rehabilitates Peter just a bit. John includes a post-resurrection story of Peter being kind of rehabilitated. Um, Re- yeah, rehabilitated. I, was, I think I was leaving out a syllable there. Rehabilitated. Um, do you love me? Yeah, yeah, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Take care of my lambs. Do you, do you love me? Oh, did you have to ask me three times? Yeah, man, I love you. And he's like, then you're my guy. And of course, in the book of Acts, Peter is one of the big headliners, right? Speaking on the day of Pentecost and all this success and kind of leading, uh, one of the leading of the, of the group again. Um, but for us, what might this mean in everyday life? The feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6, the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 7, um, this, uh, conf- this kind of partial understanding of Jesus, and then this kind of confession of Jesus. I'll say this, and I mean this uh, deeply. You don't have to be the perfect theologian to be a follower of Jesus. It's not a matter of having all our answers just right. That's not the point. This is not, this is not some trivia game where whoever knows you know, the most trivia questions about Jesus wins. It's, it's not about that. Um, 
our following Jesus, we should expect, I think, to kind of come in stages of development. I mean, if the disciples who followed him could often get things wrong, then we should kind of cut ourselves a little bit of a break with some expectation that we're not always going to be just right. And we should cut each other a break. They realize maybe, well, maybe, you know, Brother Joe says this. No one agrees with him. We don't have to excommunicate Brother Joe. You know, maybe he'll, he'll see too better. But we all have eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear. But that doesn't mean we stay there, right? The revelation of Jesus comes. Our encounter with Jesus comes. And it's not just a once and for all. Like, man, I've encountered Jesus. Well, whew, that's, glad I got that out of the way. We encounter Jesus kind of again and again. And again and again and again. And we see more clearly. Which should then also produce in us a confession as to who we think Jesus is. And that confession, right, has all these other implications in our lives. Um, how did I, I phrased it on uh, Sunday, I don't know if you're all here or not, in the call to worship, that I've pledged my allegiance to the Lamb so that I have nothing left for the donkey and the elephant. And so... I mean, I don't, I don't know your feelings about the outcome. If you were surprised or not surprised, if you were happy or sad. But I know this, that I sometimes hear people quote Jesus and say, well, Jesus says my kingdom is not of this world, as though to say that Jesus' kingdom is only heavenly, not earthly. I think that's a misreading. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, he means my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. He doesn't mean my kingdom won't take place on earth. The coming of the kingdom comes to earth. It involves real people in real places. It affects who we are and how we live and how we treat one another. And it affects us physically and psychologically. It affects us economically. I want to thank you all. Sunday was a good Sunday. Um, our missionaries are being supported. I, I'm feeling good, right? I'm feeling good about, about the work of God at Oasis. Um, it's those kind of socioeconomic implications that are difficult to talk about and they're difficult to... Um, Follow sometimes. It's kind of easy for us to take this more apolitical stance and just hope for some, you know, mansion on the other side of the rainbow. But Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms, and uh, He's gone to prepare a place. And it's, and it's in that that I think we have hope, or we should put our hope, and not in other places. Um, 
So part of it, right, is that we are humans, and part of what it means to be a human is to have a perspective. So we, we're kind of always kind of up against that. So do we lament the fact that we have perspective, or do we kind of celebrate the fact that we have perspective, but we just keep our pers- we hold on to our perspectives more loosely? So as opposed to me saying, "Hey, I see it, and I know what's real." And you guys better get in line or get out. Or maybe you saying that to me. We, we hold our perspectives more loosely because we have this expectation that, well, I've, I've sought something before and found out that that was wrong. So maybe what I'm thinking now is wrong. And so I'm, I'm going to come into a community of faith and, and I'm going to hear Mar- Marissa say, well, what if... What if this is an example of that? Or I'm, I'm going to hear Pat say, well, this is how I see it, right? And, and as that happens, um, I start to, I don't know, see clearly what I thought was trees actually is people. <laughs> and so I, I kind of learn. I mean, I think, I think we learn from our encounter with God I think we learn from an encounter in God that comes through other people, our, our community. Um, and we need the foolishness of preaching, like the Bible says. There you go, yeah. To help us to re-see Yeah, it is, in our culture, it is very Christian culture, so not the dominant culture, but in our subculture of Christianity. We often talk about everybody kind of uh, reading Scripture uh, devotionally, right? So we not, we're all supposed to go read Scripture. I'm not opposed to that. Just want to be clear. I'm in favor of reading Scripture. However, I'll say this. We, we said it so often that we reduced reading Scripture to something that was done privately. And we didn't uh, emphasize the need to kind of read it uh, communally. Right, And if we're only reading it privately, then we just see those trees and we think, oh, I got that. That's about trees. And we keep on moving. And we haven't had that deeper, clearer revelation that that's actually people. Or we hear something about yeast and we're like, um, that's a good thing, right? Because you get Jesus at one point saying the kingdom of God is like, like yeast. It just takes a little bit, and it has this big effect. So yeast is a good thing in biblical metaphor. Except in this story, it's the yeast of the Pharisees. It only takes a little bit of this kind of religiosity to kind of then affect the whole. And we all just become these overly religious folks. So the, the, the metaphor of yeast is both used positively and negatively. In the book of Revelation, there's this blessing. There are actually seven blessings in Revelation, which almost seems impossible to be an accident, right? Because there's seven angels and seven trumpets and seven bowls and seven thunders and seven churches and seven horns and seven eyes. And so the fact that there's seven, I think, is not an accident. However, we're never told there's seven. You'd actually have to count them to realize there is. So it's kind of subtle. But the first of the seven blessings, Beatitudes of Revelation, comes in chapter 1, verse 3, and it says this, Blessed is the one who reads, 
and those who hear and keep the words of this prophecy for the time is near. In the ancient church, we didn't have access to multiple copies of Scripture. So, Rob and I were talking about what's, what's a good translation to study with, right? That wouldn't have been a question in the ancient church. Because in the ancient church, you only had one copy. And it kind of stayed at the church. So one person would read, and this was the same before there was churches. Like before Christianity, and in that group of people, when they just had uh, Jews, and they were at synagogues. The scrolls were at the synagogues. People didn't take scrolls home with them. I mean, you didn't have multiple copies of the scrolls, right? So you open the scroll of Isaiah, you open the scroll of the Psalms, one person would read, and everybody would hear, including the reader, right? Because when you read, you hear yourself. And that, that kind of collectiveness was a way of shaping, forming, and sustaining the community. One other comment real quick. Um, something else that Pat said stood out to me, particularly in this kind of uncertain time, you know, who's to say what the future holds in the U.S. the next, you know, 90 days, 100 days, whatever. Um, not only, uh, Pat, do, do people in Scripture, and I think people today, not only respond to kind of positive, miraculous things like feed the 5,000 or walk on water or calm the storm, cast out the demon. They also don't respond so well to uh, negative things. You know, judgment comes upon Israel and they're all in sackcloth. You know, you know we're going to pray now. But then the, the disaster gets, passes and everybody kind of falls back into their old practices. So it's not just positive things that we have a hard time responding to in, in terms of big story things. It's negative things too. This happens in Revelation. At the end of the seven um, trumpets, it says, it's the end of chapter 9, everyone who was not killed by these judgments returned to their sins. So today is November the 8th, 2016. November the 9th, 2016. Thank you, Marissa. If it were the 8th, my, my story wasn't going to work anyway. It's November the 9th, 2016. Yesterday, side note, was Matt Hewitt's birthday. So if you didn't say hey to Matt, you can say it's belated to him. But, um, so, 2016, I can't do my math. Uh, 16 and 11 is 27. Does anybody know what happened 27 years ago today? 27. Is everybody here over 27? No, not Marissa. Everybody else is over 27? So Marissa, you don't know. I don't know. Now watch this. Um, the Soviet Union died 27 years ago today. Yeah, the Berlin Wall came down 27 years ago today, which means Marissa was born into a world where the Soviet Union didn't exist. I grew up in a world where that was the enemy. You know, we had to do, like, drills to protect ourselves from nuclear weapons, like getting under school desk. Because you can't get hurt under school desk. <laughs> 
it's a little, it's a little funny. You know, it can destroy a whole city. I don't think the school desk is going to protect you. But anyway, we didn't say that part of the story, right? Um, yeah. Um, in the, in the U.S., if we abbreviate a date, uh, we put month, day, year, right? So this would be 11, 9, 16. In uh, Europe, when they abbreviate by numbers, they put day, month, year, right? So like the 9th, they would write 9 November if they're writing it out. 2016, not November 9. If you, do, if you do that in numbers, what is today? 9-11. There's an interesting uh, columnist um, who also writes kind of nonfiction that in the year, I think it was 2000, 2001. No, 2001 was 9-11, right? So it was like a year later. It was like 2002, 2003. He kind of raised the question in a hundred years, which 9-11 will have had the biggest impact globally on culture? The 9-11 of 1989, meaning November the 9th, 1989, where the Soviet Union was dismantled, or 9-11, 2001, meaning September the 11th, 2001, when the attacks on um, the World Trade Centers, the Pentagon, and then whatever went down in um, Pennsylvania. I, thought, I just think it's an interesting question. Um, of course, the answer to that is we don't know. We can speculate. Um, and I'm sure if we were analysts or economists or somebody, we could hypothesize different things about the future and the effects of such events. But I know this. Not, not to pick on you, Marissa, but in 2001, do you, were, were you, can you remember that event? Yes. Okay, just, just checking. I was in the fourth grade, but I remember. All right, fair enough. Uh, yeah, you can remember what happened. I know this, in, in um, 2001 when that happened, the church I was in was so full, you couldn't find a seat, the parking lot, you couldn't find a car, you couldn't find a uh, parking space. Remember all the Bible studies that started taking place? Everybody was praying. Yeah, we're all going to get together and pray. Didn't matter anymore. We used to, you know, be a little eerie about folks not like us. Doesn't matter. Come on in here. What about this Orthodox guy? He's got, he's got a pointy black hat on. I don't know. Come on in here and pray. <laughs> yeah. A year later, 18 months later, we kind of go back to our ways. Why is that? Well, that's a good question. I think it's because we have eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear. That what we need is this kind of constant um, presence and rhythm of life. That we don't, we can't, I know we emphasize so much those big experiences. You know, I really felt God at this revival or at the altar or, you know, I've, I've, I've said this confession. Or we experience God when things are awful, you know. There's been an accident. There's been a diagnosis. Somebody's passed. But until we start to follow God in the ordinary life, in the mundane things, until we start to see God in our 
in our meals, in our bread and wine, in, in our relationships. Um, I think that's, that's where the life is. And I think if we're trying to live off that other, well, we're inevitably be on life support. The passage of scripture that jumps to my mind is on the Mount of Ascension, we refer to it. Scripture doesn't call it that, but it's a term that gets used. It's the last mountain Jesus goes up on in Matthew. It says the leaven are with him. Some worshipped and some doubted. We know that the rest of that group go on to do great things for God. They live, they carry the gospel all over the Middle East and North Africa and Southern Europe. But some worshipped and some doubted. It's all right to come to a worship service and doubt. You might, six months later, maybe you'll be the one worshipping and your brother or sister will be the one doubting. (laughs) But if you don't forsake the community, I think it will be sustainable. I do. Yeah, Marissa? I know. I'm a very open person, so I might overshare sometimes. But, um, it's all right. It's a small group, so what are we going to do? I'm just saying, like, that's just, I'll say things. And all right, go for it. it but, like, something I've really personally been struggling with, like, mm-hmm. lately, like, in my life, is just realizing that maybe, like, I haven't put God first. And that's just, like, something I've, I mean, I think a lot of people probably struggle with that, but it's something that I feel like I have really come to recognize in my life. And I think a lot of that stems from taking time to have a relationship with him and letting him and his spirit, like, change me to open my eyes. And I feel like there's a lot of people who know their eyes need to be open, but it's a lot easier to have, like, them shut. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just a very, not scary, but, like, obviously we're very selfish people. And it's easier for me to be like, well, I have all these things going on, and I do want to have that relationship, but I'm too busy, so I'll just, like, do that later, and later never comes. Yeah, And I think that, like, sometimes, and I don't know if I'm going off a tangent, but it just made me think of it, but, um, like, the people who have the eyes that can't see, I think sometimes we choose that because mm. it's the easiest. So I think as Christians, we know what we're supposed to do. We know we should have this deeper relationship, and I feel like we can sense when it's not real and we're not really being Christ-like, but we're doing it enough that we think that we're good. So even though they look like trees, like, our eyes are open enough that we can see the trees, like, but I don't know if I want to take that step to let Jesus touch me again to see clearly. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think we do sabotage ourselves. We'll avoid it. And I think God's patient. And I think God's waiting. God's not in some kind of um, codependency, like a bad parent who's going to kind of run after us when we're not ready for it. Um, but I think if we do take that step, God's there. I'll say, I'll say this, uh, and I'll come to you, Dave. Um, I grew up in a tradition that was very revival-centered. Like, it, we, were, we were revivalist. I mean, we weren't just Christians. We were Christians. But we were revivalists, man. When, a couple times a year, we had these revivals, and we were always praying for revival. And I think a lot of that was birthed out of the fact that the larger movement had started with this kind of renewal revival thing. The, the challenge with a movement that starts out of revival is that it starts to treat those kind of spiritual mountain peaks as norms that we should always aim for. And the problem with it is 
If you have a spirituality that's in constant need of revival, reviving, it means that your normal state of being is almost flatlining. And there's nothing healthy about almost flatlining most of the time and needing some kind of spiritual defibrillator to be hitting you. So I'm not opposed to revival, but I think treating it as this kind of ongoing primary goal uh, kind of misses the point that the way we become sustainable is coming to grips with the revelation that God's given us that we don't see clearly, right? That we have more to learn. That pressing in and being present with God and with others will transform us. Uh, John Wesley, we'll close, who I you know, love and quote a lot, um, would say, um, I have so much to do today, I'll have to pray twice as long. So you might think if I had a lot to do, maybe you know, I'll pray tomorrow. But for Wesley, if he had more to do, he thought he needed to pray longer because that kind of offset the, the noise of the busyness. I just think that's incredibly insightful. Um, one, of, one of my spiritual fathers in my life um, spends 20 minutes every morning uh, sitting in silence, silent prayer, and 20 minutes every evening. So he gets up at four. No, I, I don't do this. I don't get up at four. I'd be more apt to go to bed at four than I would be to get up at four. But he gets up at four. He sits in silence for 20 minutes, goes back to sleep for a bit. Then he gets up at like six and gets ready for the day. And then in the evening, he does the same. Is he a perfect man? Well, no. But I, I can't help but think after doing that now for 30 years that uh, it has shaped him you know, to who he is. I uh, had lunch with him today and uh, extraordinarily kind of calming presence in my life. Well, let's pray right now. God in heaven, uh, we thank you for this evening. Uh, thank you for your scriptures. They teach us. Uh, pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. That um, we would continue to grow and to uh, live lives that um, are faithful um, and confess um, right things about Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.